But we're still working through Titus. We're finishing up chapter 1 this morning. So we're Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. Paul writes, For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Some hard words from Paul this morning. As I was reading through this chapter and studying it, I was thinking about, so try to put yourself in a position. Um, Let's say our church five or ten years down the road is in a place where we want to plant a church. Okay, so five or ten years down the road, we're going to plant a church And the church has come to you, and they've given you the job to decide where we're going to plant the church. Um, Where would you want to plant it? What what type of a community would you be looking at to plant a church if we were going to be doing that? Would you be looking in in kind of the suburbs and kind of a growing neighborhood? You know, people with young families would be kind of looking there, or would you look for? Like a well-to-do neighborhood where, you know, there's going to be some money to do some things? Or would you look for the roughest, toughest, most difficult neighborhood with hard hearts and difficult people and plant a church there? And, and some of the answer to that question just comes down to the, what it means to be a successful church. Um, because if you sometimes, if you plant a church, not always, but if you plant a church in a really difficult neighborhood and keep doing gospel ministry faithfully over and over and over again, and the church doesn't grow, is, is that a successful church? Or if you plant a church in a, in a growing neighborhood with lots of uh, families with young children and, and your church grows and the budget's fine, but no hearts are changed. Um, is that a successful church? And so as I thought about this, I kept thinking, I kept coming back to this, this question of as we do ministry, are we seeking, are we seeking to attract healthy people or are we seeking to see sick people healed? Um, because when, when churches are seeking to see sick people healed, things get really messy, don't they? Um, you have church, you have people coming to faith who've never been a Christian and then their lives get messy and churches get messy and budgets don't always work out and, and uh, churches don't always grow and it becomes difficult work when we're seeking to see, see sick people healed. And yet Jesus said he didn't come for the healthy, but to heal the sick. 
And I was thinking about that as I thought about where this church is planted in our passage on the island of Crete. Because it was messed up. I mean, even Paul says, all right, one of their own prophets has said that Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And Paul says, trust me, I know that that's true. I've been there. Right? And so, so they're looking at this island of Crete and he said, it's full of hard hearts, liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And, and not only Paul says this, here, here's what some of the other people who are um, writers during this time had to say about the island of Crete. Um, so much, in fact, do sordid love of gain and lust for wealth prevail among them that the Cretans are the only people in the world in whose eyes no gain is disgraceful. Right? So he said this, this island, they, they love wealth and they have this lust for power and wealth. And so in their eyes, any way you can get wealth and power is okay. No, nothing is bad. As long as you're making money and long as you're growing in power, everything is game. And another author said, moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. So, Paul goes there and plants a church to do gospel work in this island because they need to hear the gospel. And, and not only that, so, so it's talking about their, their moral lives are a mess and, and this island is full of greedy, hard-hearted liars and all of this stuff going on. But, but he also says that their, that their doctrine and the teaching on the island are a mess too. And so, like I mentioned last week, and you'll probably hear me mention it multiple times throughout this series, it's kind of a theme through Titus, that life and doctrine are always connected. Okay, Life and doctrine are always, always, always connected in, in the Scripture. And so, their lives are characterized by being liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. But he says that they're teaching, he says there's many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group, they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. And so you even see Paul pointing to they're, they're so wanting money and power that they're teaching wrong things even just to get money and power. And, and they're, he says they're, they're mere talkers or other, other translations say empty talkers. Talking, talking as if they're speaking profound and deep truths where there's no meaning in it at all or deceivers intentionally leading people astray intentionally deceiving people for their own gain teaching things they should never be teaching and he says and because of their teaching things that should never be taught and teaching for dishonest gain they are ruining whole households they're ruining lives by teaching wrong things right life and doctrine always connected and so because of their false teaching lives are being ruined by it and I get that it's always kind of difficult to try to make connections to older cities and cultures and newer cities and cultures. But, you know, I think we could be pretty honest and say if we were to look around at our current culture, the culture that we're in right now, we would say we're not really in a culture that honors purity of life or purity of doctrine. Right. And if we if we wanted to be politically incorrect, 
We could probably easily look around ourselves throughout the United States, throughout Wisconsin, probably, no, not probably, Beaver Dam, and we could say that there are people who would be characterized as liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, empty talkers, deceivers, teaching things they should not teach, teaching in order to gain money or prestige, right? And we know they're in this city because... Let's be honest with ourselves. If we look deep down in our heart, (laughs) they're here too. And so there's people here and there's people in this city. And so 60 years ago, someone, we, planted a church in Beaver Dam. 60 years ago. Isn't that cool? This is our 60, we're coming up on our 60 year anniversary this year as a church. And 60 years ago, they planted a church here to do some gospel work in a difficult culture, in a difficult community. And so the question comes, how do you do ministry in a a culture like this, in a situation like this? And Paul has a a couple things. Actually, this whole book of Titus is about doing ministry in a difficult culture, surrounded by difficult people. And, and so this passage that we're looking at is connected to our last passage. So two weeks ago, we talked about elders, right? And the importance of an elder having his life and doctrine in order. Paul said that's necessary. And then this passage starts with the word for, which is saying an elder needs to have his life and doctrine in order because you're doing ministry in a culture where their lives and their doctrine are messed up. So an elder has to have these things in order. They need to know what they believe and why they believe it. And they need to be seeking out the Lord and living that out so that they can walk alongside people in this culture. And so one of the strategies of doing ministry in a difficult culture is to have solid leaders, leaders whose lives and doctrine are in order. But not only that, Paul says those leaders who have their lives and their doctrine in order, they also need to be able to correct and rebuke and teach those whose lives and doctrines are out of order. And so after talking about the false teachers, he says, they must be silenced. That's pretty strong words. And then just a few passages later, after talking about uh, the, the moral mess of the island of Creed, he says, that's true, so therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. And that's a strategy. That's a strategy for ministry in a difficult culture. Have, a, have good, solid leaders and leaders who are willing to correct and teach and rebuke in this culture. And I can say that I know we don't like it very much. And even deep down inside of me, I don't like this. Like, I, I know... Okay, I'll just be honest. I told Rachel, I said, after having a week off of church and not having seen everybody for a couple of weeks, I get to come back and preach about church discipline, right? This is rah-rah, right? But but it's an important thing that we need to, to talk about, and it makes us cringe a little bit. When Paul says these false teachers, they need to be silenced, we kind of go, ooh. And then when he says, rebuke them sharply. He doesn't say rebuke them gently. He says it's got to be sharp. There should be a point to it. It's probably going to hurt a little bit even. And that makes us cringe even a little more. Um, This past week I heard a funny story. I don't know if it's true. 
Um, but it proves my point nonetheless. There, there's this little, this little small country Methodist church, and uh, they, they didn't have a pastor, so they're looking for a new preacher. And so they went to their bishop and said, Bishop, we, we need a hellfire and brimstone preacher. That's what we need in this church. And the bishop said, okay. So he did his work and looked around. He found them a hellfire and brimstone preacher and appointed him to the church. And a month goes by and the preacher leaves and they kick him out and he's gone. And so the congregation goes to the bishop again and says, all right, bishop, we need another preacher. We need a hellfire and brimstone preacher. And he kind of gave him a look. Okay, so he goes out, does his homework, finds another hellfire and brimstone preacher, puts him in the church. A couple months go by, preacher's gone, congregation's gone, or not gone, congregation's looking for another preacher. So they go up to the bishop again and they say, Bishop, we need a hellfire and brimstone preacher. And he's like, this isn't working out for you guys. I don't know what, but I'm going to. So he does it again. He finds, he searches really hard. He finds him a hellfire and brimstone preacher, puts him in the pulpit. And a year goes by and he's still there. Two years go by and he's still there. And the bishop eventually runs into somebody from the church and says, okay, what's different? How did this guy last so much longer? And the congregation member looks at him and says, uh, this preacher doesn't sound like he wants us to go there. <laughs> and I think that has some principles to church discipline as well, doesn't it? I mean, I think, I think we've, we, there's, there's this time in, in our culture, and I would say, not that I wasn't here in the 60s and 70s, right? Um, but as I've heard stories about the CRC in the 60s and 70s, there was a culture of church discipline that was unhealthy and overly negative and, and where people who were going under church discipline felt like leaders kind of enjoyed it a little bit too much. It was kind of like the hellfire and brimstone preacher preaching like he wanted people to go there. And so people were reacting to this church discipline that was happening in the church. And so we kind of swung the pendulum the other way to now when we talk about church discipline at all, we all get uncomfortable. And I include myself in it. And so we, we rightfully don't want to be like that, where we're trying to make people do penance and pay for their sin and make them feel real guilty about everything. We, we realize that Christ has paid for all of their sins. They don't need to pay for it. And yet... Yet Scripture constantly is talking about the necessity of church discipline, um, and which at its core is just discipleship. It's helping people turn away from sin and look to Jesus Christ. And if you open up pretty much every book of the Bible, at least the New Testament, every book of the New Testament is about church discipline. That's why Paul wrote it, because the church was a mess and needed to be corrected. And so every book in the Bible you open up and he's saying, you've got to correct these people. You have to rebuke these people. You have to encourage these people. And it's all our whole Christian life is about that. And Paul, even in, in this book in particular, says it's actually a strategy for doing ministry in a difficult culture. And uh, so I was thinking in Hebrews, he, he, he talks about discipline and he says in Hebrews, if you are not disciplined... And then he says, and you are, because everyone is disciplined. <laughs> then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. 
Though all the teenagers in the room say, well, I don't know about that. Well, you will one day. Uh, We all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And so what this is telling us is that when when church discipline is done rightly, it leads people closer to Jesus Christ. It's not it's not overbearing, it's not crushing people, but it's 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 taking people, leading them away from sin, away from death, and helping direct them closer to Jesus Christ where there is righteousness and peace. Like there, there's a huge benefit in it, and of course, in the midst of discipline, it always is it's not good, right? No, it's not what I mean. It doesn't feel good in the moment, right? I, I still have things where I look back on moments where my dad was disciplining me and I was so angry. I mean, one time I was so angry at my dad for disciplining me, I packed up all of my clothes, threw them in a bag and took off driving. I didn't even know where I was going. I slept in my car somewhere. It was ridiculous. And I go back to him now and said, yeah, you were right. Thanks. Sorry. I was a stupid kid. And he just kind of smiled and yeah, whatever. Right? It never feels good when it's happening, and yet we need people because we all have a little rebellion in our heart. We all do, and we're all wanting to fall away and, and fall down this path that leads toward death and destruction, and we need people to come along and say, this isn't good. This is, you're going to hurt yourself. Like, just turn and, and turn back and see Christ and what he's done and what he has for you. Um, that's all discipline is. It's, that's all that church discipline is. And, and we know that there's a difference when, when we feel discipline. There's a difference between this angry, vindictive discipline and then, but, and then loving, restorative discipline. Like you, you could tell it in the tone in which people are talking to you. You could tell it in the actions that they take. And so um, scripturally teaching, it's always... This church discipline is always done out of love and restoration. That's the goal. Paul says, rebuke them sharply so that the purpose of this, the the goal of any discipline is that they would be sound in the faith, that they'd be restored and walking in line with Jesus Christ. It's never um, like I was going to say, if you ever find yourself rebuking someone sharply and deep down in your heart, you're knowing you're doing it because you want them to feel it. To hurt a little bit, that's not Christian. Or if you want them to pay for what they did because you're rebuking them sharply, it's not Christian. But if you know I have to rebuke this person sharply so that they would turn and look to Christ, that is Christian. We don't rebuke, we don't crush the soft-hearted, the downtrodden, you don't kick them while they're down. But as I've mentioned before, Jesus spoke hard words to hard hearts. And soft words to soft hearts. And so there are times when we need to speak sharply in order to see someone restored in the faith. But that's the goal always. You speak to them because you love them and you want to see them walking in step with Jesus Christ. 
And, and I make a big deal about discipline, for one, because I preach through books of the Bible and it just comes up all the time. Um, but, but so the Bible makes a big deal about church discipline and, and our confessions make a big deal about church discipline. And I remember when I first uh, became a youth pastor and I was trying to make sure I understood the Bible better and, you know, nothing like being thrown into ministry to realize how much you don't know. Right. And so I was reading the Bible and I was reading our confessions and trying to figure this out. And I came across this, this article in the Belgic confession, which is one of our confessions. And it says this, it says the true church can be recognized if it has the following marks, all right? So it gives us three marks for a true church. The first one is the church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. So if the church isn't preaching the pure gospel, they're saying it's not a true church. Second one, it makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. And then the third one, and this is the one that just jumped off the page when I read it, it practices church discipline for correcting faults. And I remember going, I, I, I just came across it the other day, right in the margins of, of my, my confession, I went, are we doing this? And this, this was my, you know, I was 20-something at the time. But, and I was like, my goodness, it says a true church has to be doing this. It has to be doing the pure preaching of the gospel, the right administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. It says, in short, a, a true church governs itself according to the pure word of God rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. And, and so the point is that in order to be a healthy church that's seeking Christ rightly, we have to have this kind of atmosphere of good, healthy, loving, restorative discipline. Correcting, leading people, pointing them to Christ. And, and when you do that, it leads to this fruit of holiness and righteousness and peace in Jesus Christ. I was thinking about that, this passage this week, because when, when, I, when I start talking about this, the, the, what's going on inside of me starts going on, it's going on inside of other people too, right? You start talking about having to do church discipline and, and our immediate reaction is, what what if people don't like it? What if, what if we start scaring everybody away? What if, what if people leave? Nobody wants to come in and be, you know, what, what, what happens? How do we do ministry like this? And I was reminded that Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it's important for us to know that not only is Christ promised that he will build his church, but that it's his church that he's building. And then that means we should be doing ministry the way he's told us to do ministry. We should be preaching the word of God. We should be ministering the sacraments rightly. And we should be doing correcting and disciplining rightly. And he said, when you do that, when you trust me in that, I will build my church. And nothing's going to come against it. And so you have this picture, this beautiful picture of this island of Crete, full of liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and a church. And a church that stayed there for a really long time and grew and grew and grew because Christ said he will build his church. We have the beautiful picture of Faith Community Church planted here 60 years ago. Difficult culture, difficult community in its own unique ways. And yet 60 years through ups and downs and all of that, Christ is still building his church here amongst us. 
using us to build his church. And so our call is to just keep our eyes on Christ, to be faithful to the ministry that he's called us to do, to keep to keep looking to him, following him, correcting and leading other people to him and then trusting him that he will build his church by by through us doing ministry the way he's called us to do. Um, that's really what it means to be a successful church. Looking to Christ, following him, being faithful to him, and trusting him to build his church. And that's what we're praying for. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, and we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come to you again and we give you thanks for your grace and your mercy in our lives. As we talk about church discipline, we all recognize our own sin in our own lives and how we fall short. And so we thank you that um, we rely on your mercy and your grace and your, we thank you for your willingness to pour that out on us each and every day. And Father, help us as a community to walk with each other in this faith. Help us to, to lead one another closer to you. Um, to correct when we see someone falling away and falling into sin. And, and uh, for our own hearts, when we are, fall astray and into sin, Lord, to have our own hearts receptive to be corrected and led back to you. Lord, it's our desire as a congregation to look to you and to follow you in all of this. And so we ask you to be here and to shape us and mold us and bring us into your image and uh, help us to do this well, we pray. Not to beat people over the head, but to walk alongside and encourage them to come closer to you. Father, it's our prayer that everything we do in this church, everything we do on a Sunday morning, but also on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays throughout the rest of the week, that everything we do would bring you glory and honor. So we pray that you would do that work in us. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.